0: Well, Good morning everybody. It is good to be here. You can say good morning. That's all right. Does Jordan allow you to speak in, during the service? He doesn't? To for years. Okay, <clears throat> very good. I can't tell you how proud I am of Jordan and Wendy. Uh, they are a great example of what we're trying to accomplish at Great Lakes Christian College. Now we can't take all the credit for who they are as people and as leaders in the church. Uh, they're, they have great parents. I know both their parents. And they are amazing people. They've come from a great family background. And uh, that is a big part of who they are today. But we did have them for about four years, five years. And we're able to help shape them uh, a little bit at the end of uh, of all their being raised up in the church and in a great Christian family. So we are really proud of both of these guys and for what they bring to the kingdom. But they're great examples of what we're trying to accomplish there. Uh, growing up in the church... I wasn't too enamored with it all. Uh, This was before the days when we had children's church, uh, before the days when we had uh, youth groups, worship bands, smoke machines, special lighting effects. So uh, worship was just uh, bare-bones worship back in the day. And part of the problem was uh, my dad was the preacher, and that's part of the problem. And uh, I always feel for kids who are preacher's kids uh, because it's sometimes a tough, tough role to play. My dad was editor-in-chief of Standard Publishing Company, which publishes a lot of Christian materials. And on the weekends, he'd travel out every weekend for 17 years. We'd travel out 40 miles uh, before the interstates, shows you how old I am, Four, 40 miles out and 40 miles back every every weekend to a, a small country church that had no indoor plumbing. Uh, I remember the days with outhouses. Anybody remember outhouses? Yeah, I know how old you are. Okay. But, but back in the day, without houses, amazing thing. And then I had to sit there and listen to my dad preach uh, during the service. And it was kind of a boring experience. My dad was a very heady, philosophical kind of guy. And so he preached way over my head. And so I really didn't get much out of it. But as I grew older, my feelings toward the church changed when I got into my teens and early 20s. Rather than being bored with the church, I was angry. Angry about the church. Uh, I love Jesus, but the church, I just would see through teenage eyes, through college students' eyes, uh, the hypocrisy of the church, where the church was failing their communities, when the church seemed to be all about themselves and not being concerned about those around them. Uh, Even for a brief time, I got a part of the, the Jesus people movement. That really shows, again, how old I am. Jesus people and we actually had a a Jesus March downtown Cincinnati where I grew up and uh, they closed all the streets So we had thousands upon thousands in the Jesus people March. I was one of the co-chairs of Organizing this thing it was quite the experience and we were all excited about Jesus But the church eh, not so much Uh, I went to the Christian college Cincinnati Bible College because my dad made me There's five boys in my family And my dad, knowing his boys, there's five boys, uh, said, uh, because I raised you, because your mother and I raised you, you owe me one year at a Bible college. Uh, He knew what we needed in our own lives. It's fascinating, uh, because we went to a Bible college. interesting. My oldest brother, John, ended up being a pastor. My brother, Jim, the second one, is the director of Child Focus, which is a, a nonprofit organization in Cincinnati that works with children with mental health issues and learning disabilities, and it, they have 300 employees in this nonprofit, so it's a huge organization in Cincinnati. Then I got into the ministry, and ultimately the president of a college. My I have a twin brother uh, who is a licensed family therapist, a Christian licensed therapist. And my youngest brother, Bob, is a missionary. So I guess it worked. <laughs> he knew what we needed. But when I was at, at college at Cincinnati, um, when I asked my wife to out for the first date I was a freshman she was a sophomore uh, she said the only reason I said yes is because I knew you'd be the last person on campus to ever go into ministry <laughs> I knew just because of who I was very rebellious nature and uh, but God has a sense of humor unbelievably one year out of graduation God called me into ministry and he called me into ministry in the church unbelievable to me in the church my first couple of years i just preached hellfire and damnation sermons because i was just so angry at god for calling me into ministry and i was angry at the church for being the kind of church it was until finally i had an elder say to me you keep preaching like that i'm leaving the church and i said what's wrong truth hurt yeah that was my attitude i even had a fist fight with a deacon believe it or not that's true true story playing a softball game, things got heated, and I got in a fist fight with a deacon, and the deacon left the church, and I had some elders who said, I think this guy's worth saving, not quite sure yet, but uh, let's hang on to this guy, but I just had this pent-up anger about the church and about, about what it should be and what, what it didn't end up being, and, uh, but th- they were patient with me, and I slowly started to see what God sees about the church. You see, no matter what I felt about the church as a kid or as a young man, it is what God has called into existence. The church, no matter how I feel about it, is a divine institution. The church, no matter how I feel about it, is Christ's bride. It's a group of those who have been called out of the world to form a body of believers who are actually the body of Christ on the earth. And it's been my passion to work on its behalf ever since. Now perhaps your spiritual journey has been a little like mine. You love Jesus, but at best you're lukewarm toward the church. Maybe you've worked through all the negative feelings about the church like me and now understand that the church is full of people who will never be perfect. Come any Sunday, you're going to find the church includes knuckleheads, bullies, hypocrites, liars, addicts, and all kinds of sinners and reprobates. And I'm telling you, I'm glad it does. I'm glad it does, because I've been known to be a knucklehead at times. I've been a hypocrite, still am, and a sinner. So I'm glad the church opens its doors to people like me. But despite the makeup of the church, despite its flaws, there are great expectations concerning its place in God's eternal plan. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter, if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, look at 4 and 5 and then verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and then 9. He's talking to you, the church. He's talking to me as a part of the church. As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down to verse 9. But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal Priesthood, A holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The church, you and me together, are a spiritual house, part of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. I think too many of us have such a limited view of the church. We drive down a road and see a church sign or a church building, and depending on the size of either, think of a group of people who gather on Sunday mornings to sing songs, take up an offering, and hear a word or two from the Bible. But the church is so much bigger than that. God sees us as chosen, royal, holy, a priesthood, Even a nation. We are part of something that is divine in origin and eternally blessed. We have within us, the church, an inherent power to change the world forever. Not because we're such a wonderful people, but because we serve a wonderful God. We are as big and important as God sees us. The problem is that many churches have an inferiority complex. Satan through the world has tried to minimize and marginalize the place of the church so much so that people start to believe it. But that isn't what God thinks of the church. Uh, Peter's further words to the church in 1 Peter 2 says that we are set aside that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So how are we to do that? When we come together on a Sunday morning and there's walls around us and people don't have an opportunity to even to peer in the windows to see what we do and who we are, how are we to declare the praises of him who has called us out of this darkness? We come together to sing on Sunday mornings. We share the love of Christ with each other. But is that the sum total of what it means to carry out this mandate? Is there something more effective in letting the world know about this wonderful grace we have in Jesus? Yes, there is. Read on to verse 10 through 12, the same passage. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And here's where he comes to it. Church, live such good lives among the pagans that though... They accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. John Nugent, one of our professors at Great Lakes Christian College, suggests that the church was created to be the model home of God's kingdom. I think it's a great picture. When home construction companies create a subdivision, they usually build a model home to show what living in that community would be like, right? People walk through it to see if it's the kind of place where they want to live. John Nugent says, and I really like it, the church is that model home for God's kingdom. So when the world looks at the church, perhaps this church, what are they seeing? They think they are looking at God's model home. They think they are seeing what God's neighborhood looks like. Isn't that a great picture? The questions that need to be asked are, hmm, what kind of model home are we? And secondly, does anybody want to move in? The question needs to be in the church, is there any indication that God's kingdom here in this place has truly come? Peter tells us in verse 12 that we need to live such good lives that when they see our good deeds, God will be glorified. How can we tell if God's kingdom has come in our church? It's when the church lives out its faith by being a blessing to a people and then being a blessing to ourselves. And who understands that we are a part of God's family, God's church? We are Christ's bride in order to make that impression on the world. I think sometimes it seems that churches have a problem figuring out what God's will is because they mistakenly look at themselves as being predominantly either church-centered or community-centered. The church-centered congregations view themselves sometimes as those set apart to safeguard the truth of God's word. Their activities are focused on what is done within the four walls of the church. A couple of weeks ago I spoke at a another congregation over in Ohio, uh, uh, in their, the church is going through some leadership transitions and a few people aren't happy about what's going on in the church. When I suggested that the issues separating them were not salvation related and that their negative behavior toward each other is providing the community with yet one another poor example of what it means to be the church, it fell on deaf ears. What they were more focused on was their differences even within the church, and not that their faulty witness was preventing others from glorifying God and seeing the difference Christ can make in one's life. But then you have the community-centered churches that go to the opposite extreme and are so extremely, uh, so externally focused that the word of God as authority is ignored. See, the important thing to them is how people are made to feel, not how God is obeyed. Instead of being church-centered or community-centered, the church needs to be kingdom-centered. To be a kingdom means that there's a king. And that kingdom has a people. It's us, and it's our job to submit to the Lord's reign. Kingdom people seek first God's kingdom. What are the characteristics of kingdom people? What is God's will for the church? I think there's many scriptures that help us understand, in part, what we're supposed to do as the church. I'm just going to share just a few of these. For example, Titus 3 says this. This is a trustworthy thing, and I want you to stress these things. He talked to this young preacher named Titus. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then he says again, our people, the church, must learn to devote themselves to doing good. What is good? That's a fascinating statement to me. That should come naturally, it seems. But he says that the people of God have to learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Galatians 6 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. Therefore, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to spur one another to love and Good deeds. 1 Timothy 6 says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Do you know why we're given the Bible? 2 Timothy 3 tells us, he said, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that's why we were given the bible to equip us for every good work the church was divinely designed for a reason as well ephesians 4 says it is it was he who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare god's people for works of service are you seeing a pattern here (laughs) ephesians 2 says for we are god's handiwork created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. Matthew 5 records the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And praise your Father in heaven. How do we put our light on the stand? Jesus is telling us. He says it is through our good deeds. It is by making the doing of good deeds a preeminent expression of our faith walk in Christ. What's the result? Jesus says that when our others see our good deeds, what happens? Our Heavenly Father will be praised. When I was in high school, my stated life purpose was simple. It was to help make the world a better place because I've lived in it. In fact, I actually wrote it down. I felt that was a noble purpose. It probably was. But as I've gotten older, I'm not sure that God has called Christians to make the world a better place. I I agree with those who think that he has called us, the church, to be the better place. Our good deeds aren't for the purpose of making the world a better place It's for the purpose of bringing praise to the Father. And when our Heavenly Father is praised, blessings will follow close behind. Our good deeds, done through our Father and in His Son's name, bring blessings to the world. It's when, literally, His kingdom comes to earth. When people of faith actually live out their faith, the world will be able to see the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life. The world is able to see God for who He really is. I have a neighbor who lives right across the street from me. His name is Bill, and Bill's been retired for a a long, long time. He's a General Motors guy. It's interesting. I have three neighbors across the road. All these guys uh, are retired guys, and retired a long time ago. They're all General Motors workers. They're out of Lansing. Used to make the Oldsmobile. If you remember those, you can tell how how old you are if you remember the Oldsmobile. Anyway, uh, one one day I came out of my house uh, going to work, and I noticed that my mailbox, somebody, some uh, group of young guys come by with a baseball bat and knocked, by, knocked the mailbox right off the stand. And I went, oh, great. That's something i got to do when I come home. I was on my way to work, so I didn't have time to do it then. But when I came home that night, I discovered a brand new mailbox sitting there, so all encased in plastic, you know, really nice, expensive one. It just was gorgeous. And I went, oh, my gosh. And I went, I know who did that. That was Bill. So when I parked the car, I got out and walked over. Bill always would sit in front of his, uh, his garage. And uh, the reason he had to sit in front of his garage is he liked to smoke, and his wife said, you can't smoke in the house. So he sits out in front of the garage all day long smoking and drinking his beer. So when I said, hey, Bill, I have a surprise out here. And he goes, what? What are you talking about? And I said, well, I got a new mailbox here. And he goes, yeah, looks like you do. And I said, uh, thank you, man. And he said, uh, no problem. And I said, well, how much do I owe you? He said, you don't owe me anything. I said, you, you paid for that and put it all in. Surely I owe you something because you don't owe me a thing. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, listen, Larry, this is what neighbors do, right? Whoa. I went, thank you. And I turned around and started walking across the, the road back to my house. And I'm going, you know, to be honest, if I saw Bill's mailbox torn down, I don't know that I'd think. That it was my responsibility to put up a new one. And then it made me think about the church. When people look at the church and see our good deeds done in Jesus' name, and they thank us for it, can we say, well, this is what Christians do, right? This is who we are. This is what Christians do. How does God want his kingdom to come? it is through the church living out its purpose. And kingdom living is found when our faith in Jesus issues in doing good for others so the heavenly Father might be praised. Kingdom living is found when the church focuses the servant of the servants of God on serving the needs of others. Kingdom living is found when the church sees the world desperately need and help and in saving and then acts accordingly. I came across a scripture recently and It was recently and struck me in a new way. I love the Bible and how you can read it over and over again and, and discover brand new things that the Holy Spirit teaches you. It's just a wonderful thing. But Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Man, I was reading that, and I, man, I just said, the Holy Spirit saying, Larry, did you catch that? Did you catch that? When we are kind to the poor, we actually... Lend to the Lord. What? That's crazy. The idea of me lending anything to the Lord is remarkable, right? But according to the scripture, when we are kind to the poor, when we help to meet the needs of others, and I don't think it's just poor materially. I think poor in spirit as well. We lend to the Lord. And the rest of the verse says that God will reward those who do that. It's almost like when we do good for those in need, we're giving a loan to God and that he's going to pay us back with interest as a result. Wow. This is what kingdom living should look like. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are asking God to help us be the church he created us to be. That kind of church is a church that gives and shares and does good deeds so the Father will be praised. Uh, last February, I helped to lead a group of students and a couple of our faculty members to India, to Damo, India. Uh, we have a couple of students at the time. They're, they're from India, and so I had promised them that one of the, one of the years they're there, and, and this student, Stephen McFarland, was a senior. And I said, we'll, we'll go, we'll go. And so I, I actually did. We took a group of us over there. And while they are trying to make this brief, his grandfather's name is Jay Henry. He's been a missionary there for quite a while his grandfather has planted get this 90 churches in central india which is very much has a lot of radical hindus there 90 churches has started a bible college where every student there goes free of charge for room and board everything he raise all the support and then also has a, a school elementary through th- 12th grade 2600 students and it's a christian school and 90% of the students are hindu children that's amazing powerful powerful family but during the week, he took our group, and we went to a Hindu temple. Now, only the Brahmin class can even get on the temple environs. If you're not a Brahmin, if you're Indian, you can't even get onto the temple grounds. And so he lets us, and he takes us a tour of all this, and it just was kind of really eerie and weird and different, but there was also this real darkness, because he would take us around to show us the different idols that they would pray to for different things. This is, the, you know, fertility for farmers. This is Kali, who's the god of destruction. we got to pray that nothing bad happens to me, so we offer offering there. And then finally he took us into their like holy of holies where their god is, the the, the main god. And we're, we're peering into this thing, and it's just so dark, and I'll just make it brief. It was just a just a very dark, oppressive thing. They were banging, banging uh, gongs and drumming drums and, And the reason is, is the God who was there, we were in central India, that is just an image because there's a conduit somehow up to where the God lives up in the Himalaya Mountains. And you have to bang the gong so loudly to get his attention because he's so far away. So anyway, afterward, we're sitting in this, we're very subdued. (laughs) All of our group is like, man, what have we just seen? And it's just so dark and oppressive and so lacking of God's presence and we're in this room, and the high priest comes in to talk to us. And he mentions how Jay Henry, who's the grandfather I mentioned, had been such a blessing to his life as helping with his English. And he said, what I've noticed, too, is that Christians, Christians use their material things for blessing other people. And he said, with the Hindu religion, whatever we get in with offerings, the high priest and the priest keep all the money. They don't share. It, it goes all into here and for the temple. But Christians do it differently. And it was really, really saying it was through J. Henry's doing good deeds that changed his mind about Christianity. And this is what this high priest said with other priests with him, and we're sitting there in this room. He says this, I know this because of J. Henry. I know this. Your God is real, and I know he's powerful. It wasn't because J. Henry was trying to convince him he was right and the priest was wrong. It was simply through the doing of good deeds. That Hindu priest saw J. Henry's heart. Today, each of us has the opportunity to display an understanding of what it means to be the church. We, the church, are commanded to do good, to serve, to give generously. Jesus, at the end of the Beatitudes, says something that many Christians overlook. In Matthew seven twenty four, Jesus says this Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. I remember that story from as a little kid, and I always thought that the rock we build on is Jesus. That's why I always understood, right? That's what I sang as a kid. But Jesus says that you build your house upon the rock when you put into practice the things that you've heard from Jesus. If we want our faith to stand, if we want the church to stand, we have to put into practice the things we've learned. Uh, My oldest boy, Jason, has a master's degree in engineering, very bright guy. Uh, He goes to a church down in Alabama, and the church came to him and said, we'd like you to teach our adult Bible school class. And Jason goes, well, I'm not sure I'm prepared to do that. And they go, what? Your dad was a minister, and you're not ready to teach an adult Bible school class? He goes, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll let you know in a couple of years, and I'll be ready. What Jason did, he went and got a Master's of Theology degree so he could teach Bible school because he wanted to divide the Word of God rightly. And I said to him, I said, Jason, is that really the sole reason why you did it? He said, I was part of it. He said, but here's what, I, I wanted to grow deeper in my faith. That's why I went and got a Master's of Theology. And I said, did you? He goes, you know, it's interesting, no. I know more about my faith and why I believe it but I didn't grow deeper here's what I found dad I said what's that he goes this is how you grow deeper in your faith you simply put into practice what you already know I said Jason that was worth your two years that was worth your two years most people in church never get that they think it's about having you know incredible sermons and I'm sure you get them here or or going to seminars and doing all kinds of things how you grow deeper is you put into practice what you already know Today is a day we can build our house on the rock. We can take seriously all these scriptures tell us to do good so the Lord may be praised. We are that chosen people in a holy nation, and we need to live like it. Now you might think that this message on doing good is so obvious it goes without saying. And yet we are told by Jesus, no less, that when the church does good things in his name, the Father will be praised. So the question the church needs to ask itself is, How much is God being praised today? In the last 20 years or so, has the praising of God increased or decreased? So maybe this message is needed after all. Perhaps we need to be a people of God who live out the life of God so that others will be drawn to the love of God. Jesus says this will happen when we put our light on a stand, the stand of good works. We need to take seriously what the scripture is telling us to do we need to be a blessing to others in order to bless god and few things bless god as much as him seeing you serve others it's when the church really is the church that god envisioned it's when his kingdom comes in a real and meaningful way to this community and into this world let us pray father i thank you and praise you for who you are for the love and mercy and grace that you give to us. Lord, I thank you that you have such a high opinion of we as the church. Lord, instill in us through your Holy Spirit that same kind of vision to see what we can truly be in this world. Father, I I challenge myself and all those here to consistently think of ways where I can do good for others and do it, with them knowing that I'm doing it because I'm a Christian. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for its rich history. And I pray for its future as it seeks to be the church where your kingdom comes. As I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.